Good morning. How are you? Ignore the weather for the last week, please. Did you hear it? Did you hear the unmistakable sound of the first proper week of summer? Now, tomorrow is the start of the Leaving Cert. Okay, there'll be people anxious and worried all day today. And people like me trying to reassure them with chicken fillet rolls and cans of Diet Coke and stationery. So we want to wish everybody well, parents and children and grandparents, everybody who's concerned and worried and anxious about the Leaving Cert tomorrow. I'm not going to be flippant and say it'll all be fine. It's difficult, but you will get through it. And there is light at the end of the tunnel. And as the riptide movement say, it all works out. Michael Abafemi loses possession, and there was a chance on the edge of the area, and they scored! What a goal from Serpsian! Their number eight, he was a long way out, and he beat Kelleher. All ends up, and that came out of nowhere. First place in no time, and the derby might be over with two furlongs to run, because he's accelerated in the style of a true champion. And for Mayo, Bagan bouncing on his line, oh, he drills it high into the roof of the net. It's an exquisite penalty from Killian O'Connor. Roy Bagan went the right way. Swarming through with that one, and it is uh, the man who started off the movement, Dan Sheehan, with the try for Leinster. And uh, certainly the disjointed uh, Glasgow was almost like uh, Rangers versus Celtic with the Clyde River between the two of them there. <laughs> Shaburn leading off a medley of moments when Radio 1 made me forget what the weather was doing this week. Now, there are two ways of making your picks for playback. You can do what my estimable colleague Sinead Mooney does, a complicated process involving log tables, slide rules and lengthy equations. Or we can do it the way that the late Trassa Davison once told me that she liked to do it. Trassa was the original of the playback subspecies of radio presenter. She would leave the radio on in the background all week long and wait until she heard those what did your man just say kind of moments. Joe Duffy had one on Tuesday afternoon. Number one is firearm related injury. Put that in your boil bag of sweets. I nearly choked on my Werther's original. The backdrop to this was Don McLean, his schedule to do his American Pie thing here in October. But Joe wanted to know, since he was a big Second Amendment rights and NRA supporter, in the wake of the Uvalde massacre, should we not all boycott his gigs? Honouring the day the music died, what about the day the children died? Surely, McLean, surely McLean should have nothing to do with this crowd, the yeah. NRA. Uh, well, the NRA is a perfectly acceptable organisation to a lot of people. Um, and I'd love to know what Don McLean's crime is. Among Liveline's many listeners, it turns out, there is a strong representation of gun rights advocates and Don McLean fans living in Tennessee. I mean, who knew? And wh- why, why does he need to be cancelled? He's entitled uh, to, to accept any 
gig that he gets. You know, that's the way he makes his living. Um, so what has he done wrong? Uh, and why, why, why do you try to vilify, you know, organizations? There's lots of people in the States here that own guns. They're mm. all good gun owners. And uh, it's a part of our life. It's a part of everyday life here. Now, lesser phone-in show presenters would think twice before picking a fight with the people who own all the guns. But not our Joe. You're grandstanding about human lives, about children's no, lives. Listen, listen, right. But uh, So do you want to get, get to a solution or yes, do you want to stay yes, in the same place Absolutely, again, yes. You know? I want to, what is your solution then? About as awkward as a pacifist at a Michigan militia rally, Joe tried to throw a few facts into an otherwise emotion-only argument, only to end up getting fact-checked himself by Kieran. It, percentages are meaningless. Those children are 100% dead. The biggest killer right. of children in the United States isn't childhood leukaemia, isn't car accidents, it's guns. That's not yeah, true, Joe. That's not true, OK. No. Far more, far, more, far more children are killed every year in the States through eating sweets, choking on sweets. That's the biggest killer of children in the States. Well, that's news to me. I'll have to verify that because I'm, well, I'm going, do, because I'm going anyway, on about look, Joe, three speeches I, I, I read. Now, I have no idea what happened in studio on Tuesday afternoon, but in my mind's eye, Joe threw a pointed look out the window at his producer at this moment. But there was no need, as his army of minions, sorry, producers, were already all over this errant fact. And when Joe came back to Kieran, it wasn't for a fact-checking so much as a fact-chewing. Kieran, your, your nonsensical point about sweets killing children. Well, I'm, look uh, it up, Joe. Look I am it looking it up. I am looking it up. Okay. I am looking it up. Okay. And 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 the new the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a highly respected, okay, and verified, and peer peer reviewed uh, uh, medical, probably one of the most respected medical magazines in the world. The leading causes of death among children and adolescents in the United States between 1999 through 2020, in 2019, uh, number two was motor vehicle crashes. Number right. one is firearm-related injury. Put okay. that in your boiled bag of sweets. Joe Duffy! <sighs> Ooh. It's very handy, isn't it, to have somebody to shout out your name like that to signpost when you think you've won an argument. Joe Duffy! But more and more armed Don McLean fans just kept pouring over the horizon. And before long... It was like Duffy's last stand at the Alamo. If you like Don McLean, should you check yourself before going to his concert? What I'd like to know, Joe, is why why you're supposed to be an impartial presenter okay. of, of programmes and you're you're not uh, definitely, you're very much partisan in this subject as you have been on many other subjects. Indeed, yes. And you don't um, allow people to express yeah. views that are not similar to your own. But what I want to say is uh, jo- that... Uh, Joe, Joe, hello, hello, Joe. We have gun clubs in this country... If, if a rock singer or a pop singer was a member of a gun club in this country, yeah. should their concert be cancelled as well? Yeah. You know, gun clubs in this country are the same as gun clubs in America, only to call them the NRA. But you, you close your eyes to these sort of situations. Furthermore, we have a situation in this country. You talked about the number of guns in this country per head of population. Mm-hmm. You know as well as I do that there are loads of thousands of illegally held weapons in this country by drug gangs and by illegal paramilitary organisations. There are killings going on in, this, in the city of Dublin and around the country by drug gangs every day of the week or every week of the year. And I don't see any demonstrations out about that. 
you know, and the other point is that if we have, if you have a rock star or a pop star mm-hmm. appearing at a concert this year, and they are, they have been known to be taking illegal drugs like cocaine or, or cannabis or anything like that, should their concerts be cancelled as well? When you look at all the deaths that have happened as a result of drug taking, and the deaths that have happened as a result of people who buy drugs and support these drug gangs around mm-hmm. the country, and most of them are celebrities, pop stars, rock stars, and, and famous people who turn their a blind eye to the fact of where these drugs come from. You see, we can be very selective in who we clo- mm-hmm. choose to demonise when it suits. I've absolutely no idea whether by the end of all of this we had sorted it out, if we should be going to Don McLean or not. But he was a very absorbing hour of radio. Brendan O'Connor crafted his own pretty skilful what-did-your-man-just-say moment last Saturday. The last time we spoke to my next guest on the show, she had got a Kalashnikov and she was learning to use it to defend her country. It was inevitable, if horrible, that after a hundred days, the war in Ukraine would become less of a repeated slap on the face and more of a regular news story. And it is appalling to think that it has begun to settle into that rhythm now, just part of the background. But Brendan's interview with Ukrainian MP Kira Rudik was a series of sharp slaps to any of us who had lost sight of what Putin is doing to a generation of young Ukrainians. I just think that we do not realize how deep the trauma is. And my biggest worry is right now that the whole generation of kids that we have in Ukraine, that at different ages they are traumatized this way and there is no way for it to be fixed or to be compensated for or to be like, you know, you know, I like in my heart, we were trying to build like this to, to raise this generation of really spoiled kids like you know like once you go through really uh, like you know you go through poverty you go through the revolutions you want your kids like to have everything possible and impossible and you want them to you know wake uh, at some point to grow up and have everything and then you hope that they will be you know so careless or something and you will they will be able to build new ukraine and this is what you work towards. You, your generation, like my generation, we work our backs off so kids will like not have to worry about anything. And right now we are robbed of that. Can you believe like we have toddlers who know their blood type. We have children who are asking us and uh, are we refugees, mommy? What are you supposed to be? to be answering to that. And then we have teenagers who have seen dead bodies and, and who, who, had to, uh, who had to help carry out their loved, the bodies of their loved ones. And we have uh, children who know how to react to air raid sirens. We have children who know how to, uh, how to tape the windows with the tapes because they know that you have to do that because otherwise you can be killed by the shockwave. Have you seen all this happen to your own children? We are not supposed to be talking about personal things because okay. it's like okay. uh, because of the Putin stress, I said. But I can tell you this way. There are two games. The game of turtle that we teach our children how to act when they are not in the bomb shelter when air raid siren is on. So I can tell you, you lay on the ground, you open your mouth, you cover your your ears with your palms and you just lay there with your mouth open, pretending you're a turtle. And then there is this game of butterfly when you have to tape every single window in your home so it would look like butterfly because then if if it breaks, you will not be killed by the uh, fractions. It's, and there are many other games that you teach them that it is all a game. 
And then when they are traveling, it's uh, a journey. And when they are somewhere in the other countries, it's temporary. But we know that it will never be the same. Kira Rudick talking to Brendan O'Connor. On Monday evening, I walked past the radio just in time to hear the start of the dock on one and this arrested line. Let's try to imagine something. You spend two weeks with someone, you share meals, sleep in the same room, chat, play cards, tell stories, sing songs. You come to admire each other. Then, at the end of the two weeks, you're told to shoot the other person. That actually happened in my home place at Dunamore, County Cork. Ooh, well, I'm sold. Quiet please, children. There'll be no parenting done for the next 45 minutes. The people who spent two weeks together were a local IRA unit and a man they had captured. A British Army officer named Geoffrey Compton-Smith. Incredibly, while he was in captivity, the IRA allowed him to write letters. Dear General, as a result of my disobeying your orders and wandering about alone, I have been captured by Sinn Féiners and am to be shot in a few minutes' time. May I ask you to make it known that it is my last wish there should be no reprisals on my behalf. I am sure the feeling is bitter enough already without our adding fuel to the fire. I believe these fellows are idealists who are doing what they earnestly believe to be right. For our part, let us try to forgive, which is more salutary and far more difficult than to revenge ourselves. I Am To Be Shot was a little gem of a programme on so many different levels. Compelling human narrative aside, it was, wait for this, the product of a Leaving Cert history project done by then 17-year-old Saoirse Sheehan. And there was nowhere that it was afraid to go in its search to illuminate this dark little corner of our past. I discovered that the officer has family still living in England and I made contact. So my name is Rupert Peplow. I'm Geoffrey and Glad's grandson. As an aside, I'm studying music in UCC and play the fiddle. And Rupert plays the same instrument. Rupert gave me some of his grandfather's letters for my project, but he also revealed to me that the Major was captured because, perhaps, he was having an affair. Dear Sir, if you could tell me exactly where my husband, Major Compton-Smith, was first captured, and if he was quite alone at the time. <laughs> Staying with this, if you like your history laced with a bit of salaciousness, later that evening, Arena delivered in spades. Investigative reporter Anthony Summers has made a Netflix documentary about the life of Marilyn Monroe using tape recordings that he made 40 years ago for a biography. Sean Rocks did talk to Anthony about Marilyn Monroe's talents as an incredibly intuitive actor. But inevitably, the interview turned to her relationships with the Kennedy brothers, Jack and Bobby. She had had an affair of sorts with JFK when he was a mere senator in the early 50s. Before he was married, um, he would go out there on brief trips to, to Los Angeles where his father was in the film. Joe Kennedy was in the film business. And they were seen... Uh, in the Santa Monica area, 
um, at a particularly rather raunchy sort of bar that JFK went to at that time. He was a, a wham-bam, thank you, man, as is well reported, not just murmured about in the scandal sheets. JFK was the, the handsome young president married to his, his beautiful wife, Jackie. That was never going to go anywhere. Um, and the Bobby Kennedy thing, I, I think, began, um, I think that JFK drew away that Robert Kennedy possibly went to see her when he was on one of his trips to Los Angeles to the brother, Kennedy brother-in-law, mm. Peter Lawford's house. The historian Arthur Schlesinger, when I asked him, would Bobby Kennedy have, have had the very married Bobby Kennedy, had nine children at that point, have, have dallied with Marilyn? And the historian Arthur Schlesinger, who was very careful, very loyal to the Kennedys, put his head on one side at lunch and said to me, look, Bobby Kennedy was, was human. He was a man. He traveled a lot. Really making the point that if you if you go to see a Marilyn Monroe and she shows you the bedroom door, the huge temptation for for a man is is to go yeah. through that door. What about the what about the attraction in the other direction? However, um, in 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 the case of Marilyn Monroe, and and there is certainly a suggestion from Peter Lawford's wife, who we hear in some of the interviews, or we hear her words in some of the interviews a suggestion that there was an overlap between the relationships between the two brothers. But what was it about the Kennedy brothers that attracted her? Was it simply power, prestige, or was there something else at play, do you think? I cannot know. I'm, I can't be inside her mind. Um, I do think that when it ended, that Marilyn then felt, on the one hand, frustrated, upset, uh, in some way insulted, and and also angry. The evidence is that she was very angry in her, in her last days. Anthony Summers, whose 650 tape-recorded interviews forms the basis of the Netflix documentary about Marilyn Monroe's life and death. At the start of the week, I felt that the big dog Boris confidence vote story was trying very hard to create a what-did-your-man-just-say moment. And you know what? If the politics of this island are to be perpetually upended because of Tory party leadership politics, the very least that the UK Conservatives owe us is the spectacle of a bloody coup that delivers a few good lines. Gavin Jennings spotted this one. If Johnson does badly but refuses to budge, a former cabinet minister said it's the job of the chief whip to decide what's in the best interest of the party and present him with a brandy and a revolver. The problem is that Boris would probably drink the brandy and shoot the chief. Nadine Dorries, the culture secretary, a politician still more famous for gobbling a cooked ostrich anus in front of Anton Deck than for any actual politics she's done, popped up on drive time in defence of Big Dog Boris. No, I'm not worried at all. In fact, I'd like to get this vote out of the way so that we can get on focusing on the issues that really need to be focused on. Doris scolded her former cabinet colleague Jeremy Hunt for trying to take the big dog down. Jeremy Hunt today has come out himself that he is time for change. I think what he means is it's time for him. You can't say repeatedly that you're not going to challenge the Prime Minister while there's a war in Ukraine and on the day Russia fires rockets into Kyiv, decide that it is time for a change of leader. Not really a good line. Not even Nadine Dorries' best line. But 
Drive Time played it because their interview with anti-Big Dog Tory rebel MP Roger Gale gave this rather interesting insight into what was going on in Dory's eyeline over the shoulder of the cameraman. I'm not sure if you saw the interview with the Culture Secretary Nadine Dorries. Well, I passed Miss Dorries um, in the central lobby about half an hour ago when she was doing yet another interview and um, I forbore to pull faces behind the camera. But um, <laughs> I, 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 I suspect that Miss Dorries is probably doing rather more harm than good from the point of view of the Prime Minister. Why do you say that? Because I don't think people relish this kind of personal attack and bitterness. Not relish it? In Ireland, we live for nothing else, Mr Gale, than the spectacle of yet another chimpanzee tea party at Westminster. All day Sunday, Monday and Tuesday, British politicians and commentators were oozing out of my radio with descriptions of Boris Johnson that fell a long way short for me of the what-did-your-man-just-say test. Yeah, you've got basically the walking wounded now uh, as a leader. Hmm... I heard that Matthew Paris was going to be on with Claire Byrne. This'll do it, I thought. This is Paris's stock in trade. Matthew, Boris Johnson is good at blustering through these types of situations, but I thought he sounded shaky last night. Yes, he, he, he does. Um, in, in that clip that you've, you've just played, I, I thought that Nicola Sturgeon's lame duck was actually rather a lame metaphor. He's a dead man walking, basically. Dead man walking? That movie was in 1995. Try as they might, none of them passed the test. And, and I wouldn't want to be the Downing Street cat this morning either. I, I think, um, you know, poor old Larry the cat, I think there will be some very, very bad-tempered exchanges with people. He does lash out. Maybe we're all just tiring of this very British use of a funny turn of phrase to cover up a complete swamp. Because, ironically, the Trassa Davison, hang on, what did your man just say, test was only passed this week by a very sober and unfunny Simon Coveney, turning up with all his homework done, refusing at face value to be drawn into the Tory leadership convulsions, no matter how hard Mary Wilson tried on Morning Ireland. Whoever is the British Prime Minister, we will work with them, of course. Um, but what we don't want to see uh, is, is Ireland being part of a strategy to maintain support within the Conservative Party in the context of hardening a position on the Northern Ireland Protocol and ripping up international treaty obligations to do that. The same programme on the same day left me staring at the radio scratching my head. Duncan Graham from Retail Excellence Ireland told Mary Wilson the good, no, in fact the great news about how much Ireland's retailers were in support of the sustainability agenda. Retailers are very concerned about climate change. Uh, it said that 80% of them uh, wanted their businesses to become more sustainable. It very much pointed the way to the fact that three quarters were saying they needed to change their practices and adopt more sustainable products in their offering. You see, great news. But here's where I got a little bit confused. The same retailers who are 80% in favour of running their businesses more sustainably think that a 20-cent levy on paper cups to encourage us to switch to plastic keep cups sends the wrong signal. The reality behind this and where the, green, uh, the Greens are taking us with this one is the, t is the elimination of paper cups and the replacement of them with, with plastic reusable cups. Now, the danger of that is that paper cups are recyclable. Paper cups in the main are often 
compostable. And we're replacing that with a plastic cup that potentially ends up in landfill. And that's a major cause of concern for us. But aren't there other realities as well? The realities that despite the fact that you say that some of the paper cups are compostable, they're not being recycled. They're going to landfill and incineration. And the Minister's point is that it is, it, it is about uh, climate change and sustainability. It's all about the objective of preventing litter and waste and minimising use of resources. Yeah, but there's a lot of people, Mary, this morning that are going to be picking up their coffee on the way into the office. And and we really believe that the future around this is around recycling. So, you know, most coffee is bought, 70% of it, in fact, is bought in a takeaway format. Um, so why don't we start moving down the route of uh, containers, to, to recyclable containers in, in workplaces uh, so that people can dispose of those coffee cups separately? You know, most vast majority of coffee the, cups, as I say, are recyclable. Yeah, they're not doing possible. that. They're not doing doing that. that. And that's where we believe government really need to put their efforts into providing that. uh, The effort that that the government is putting in is to ultimately move to an outright ban on the use of of single-use coffee cups that we'll all carry around our keep cups. And what's wrong with carrying around your keep cup? And many of them are now made from recyclable materials. Yeah, look, there is nothing uh, wrong with carrying around your your, your keep cup. Uh, personally, yes, I do. But, you know, the reality is if you look at some of the UK studies that have come out, they're saying that only 6% of people at the moment would move permanently to using a keep cup, whereas 8% would choose if there was a levy to, to not buy at all. Ever again? Really? Is that where we're at on the personal sacrifices involved in saving the planet? You'll take my paper coffee cup from my cold, dead hand? What do you think, Joe? Put okay. that in your boiled bag of sweets. More intriguing and exasperating adventures in radio after these. Do you know, I think that moving from Cork to Dublin might have changed Brendan O'Connor. It's wall-to-wall platy jubes, like you'll honestly go 20 pages by the time you find a bit of news. Platy jubes was my first, what did your man just say, moment on Sunday. Other interesting findings in that poll are that the uh, most popular party leader in this country is the Queen. Uh, she's, she's even ahead of Mary Lou MacDonald uh, and uh, she's ahead of Michal Martin. She's ahead of them all at 50% approval rating. So there you go. Platy Jubes, my slightly smutty mind, eventually figured out to its disappointment was the Platinum Jubilee. This celebration of all things British royalty was the subject of endless fascination on Radio Telefisieren this week. So what lies at the heart of that relationship historically? Well, this morning we delve into that with Dermot Farrater, Professor of Modern Irish History in UCD. Good morning to you. You spent the whole weekend, I'd say, watching all the the concerts and the... Oh, I was glued glued to it. (laughs) Well, now, you see, I said at the start that we pretend that we're not watching, but we have at least an eye on on them all the time, I would say. Some of us have self-respect as Republicans, (laughs) though. Um, (laughs) His Royal Highness of History, Professor Dermot Ferreter, and the Duchess of Mid-Morning Radio had a very interesting troll through 170 years of our ever-changing attitudes to the British monarchy and its dramas. Particularly our government's response to the marriage of Edward VIII to Wallace Simpson. And what they do then is they take advantage of the abdication crisis in 1936. Yeah, this is fascinating. It's fascinating because, you know, it's such a sensational news story internationally. Scandal. It's a scandal and it's not quite covered to the same degree in Ireland. 
Uh, and the Benedictine friar Mark Hellerman wrote amusingly about this in 1999. He described his mother in 1936, who's lapping up as much information as she can get about the abdication crisis. And, you know, she's talking to people in Dublin about it. But she was a very conscientious Catholic. And she asked a Jesuit if it was liable or scandalous to be talking about this divorce crisis and this abdication crisis. And the response of the Jesuit was, I'm not really sure, but it's really interesting. Tell me more. You know, what information do you have on it? But de Valera saw an opportunity there to move quickly to remove any references to the Crown. So the question, I suppose, by the early 1950s is, is there going to be any sort of diplomatic relationship between the Crown and the Irish government uh, with, you know, the new reign with Queen Elizabeth II. And there's really very, very little for obvious reasons. You know, Princess Margaret comes in 1965, which is interesting. It's her second visit to Ireland. And there are protests by Republicans and there are arrests. And her husband, the Earl of Snowden, had Irish relations. Uh, His mother was the Countess of Ross. Um, And there are protests there are scuffles, there's some trouble. But Sean Lamass makes a very interesting observation as Taoiseach in 1965. He suggested it would be a measure of the strengthening of our self-respect as Republicans if members of the royal family on private visits could travel around the country without too much attention being paid to them. By all means, come, but we're going to treat you just like we treat any other tourist. And remind me again, please, how is it exactly that we treat our tourists? Mary was going to say that the cheapest car hire quote you could get from a car hire company, you're back, Mary. I'm back, I'm here. Okay, you, you finish the sentence. The cheapest car hire quote was? €18,703. What did your woman just say? €18,703. So it wasn't just a standard car, it was, it was a seven-seater. Yeah, well, and it was from the 30th of July until the 6th of August. I live in Turkey and I'm going to be in the country on holidays and I had friends from Paris who were going to join us for the mm-hmm. week. So you can just imagine my shock and my horror when I went online and this quote came back. So I made a few quick comparisons with other cities as well just okay, to see... Yeah. And um, Malaga, for example, the south of Spain, the same dates, 982 euro. Charles de Gaulle in Paris, 1,692. London was 1,200. And if I went to Belfast to hire a seven-seater and paid the cross-border fees, it would be 1,171. So rip off Ireland at its best, Joe. Mary Ihan calling Joe from Turkey on Tuesday. Wednesday night at the Aviva sounds like it must have been one of those occasions that you would just have loved to have been at. Ireland played Ukraine and Irish fans would probably have found it very hard to begrudge Ukraine the win. And the FAI added to the mood by giving 3,500 tickets to Ukrainian fans for free. Ashlyn Kenny was there for Morning Ireland. Fantastic, I have to say. It really is real positive. So many fans outside. We're coming together. We forget about war and it's just about football and Two countries coming together and having a big good time, you know. That's How what do you think Irish supporters are, are feeling, you know, or is there real rivalry or is it more friendly? There is half and half. There is an element of rivalry because we need to win. But then the other side of it is, like, we love Ukraine. But when you see the kids with their flags, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, my God. And, we, you know, we forget they're coming for more. I mean, and they're here to watch a match and they're so excited. How are you finding tonight's match? We are 
from Ukraine and now we are staying in Limerick and the volunteers organized for us this a bus to get us here. So we are for Ukraine. And do you think Ukraine can win? We hope, we hope of course we, have, we will win this match and the war. I hope Ireland get a 2-1 the second half. Do you think it's an emotional night tonight here? I think it's always emotional when Ireland plays. Everyone gets really into it and the atmosphere is just unbelievable. Tell me, what's your name? Bogdan Tkaj. And where are you from? From Ukraine, Kirovogradska Oblast. I moved to Ireland in 2006. And who are you hoping will win tonight? Well, obviously I have to back my country, like, you know, even though I've been living here for so long, you know, with the current situation over there now, like, I'll just, I want to show my support as well, you know. What's the atmosphere like here tonight, do you think? Well, see, I actually, I booked tickets in the Irish stand, like, obviously, because I went with a few of my mates and that, like, the atmosphere is good, but, like, what kind of... Is, you wish you were at the other side. Well, yeah, I do wish I was on the other side, yeah. <laughs> Bogdan was the did-you-hear moment there, a snapshot of the New Ireland caught perfectly in one Ukrainian man's accent. Sporting occasions like that are powerful stuff and you could see why morally bankrupt regimes like Saudi Arabia would be prepared to spend a lot of money to try and wrap themselves up in a bit of that reflected glory. Des Cahill spent a good portion of his week highlighting the Saudis' cynical use of golf to sportswash their reputation on the international stage. The golfers playing in today's inaugural Saudi-funded LIV golf event, which begins in England, are doing it for boatloads of cash, according to Rory McIlroy. Former major champions Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson are reported to be paid respectively, Mickelson getting $200 million in advance, Dustin Johnson $150 million in advance to play in the series. And top contenders for the Trasa Davison, what did your man just say, award this week must be Lee Westwood and Ian Poulter for these joint defences of personal greed. Anywhere in the world you wouldn't play. If Vladimir Putin had a, a tournament, would, would you play there? A speculation. I'm not even going to comment on speculation. So, just In a generality, is there anywhere you wouldn't play on a moral basis? If the money was right, is there anywhere you wouldn't play? I don't need to answer that question. Sorry? I don't need to answer that question. Lee, do you want to answer it? Would you, I mean, would you have played in apartheid South Africa, for example? Well, you're just asking us to answer a hypothetical question there, which... Well, they're you know, moral we questions, aren't they? ...answer a question on that. Greg Allen took up the baton from Des Cahill when he went on with Claire Byrne later that morning and played this clip from Northern Ireland's Graham McDowell. McDowell was asked how he could justify taking a paycheck from the regime that had murdered and then dismembered the body of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And somehow he ended up saying that he was proud to do so. We all agreed that that was reprehensible. No one's going to argue that fact. But we're golfers, you know, and I, I, you know, we, you know, speaking personally, I really feel like, you know, golf's a force of good in the world. Um, I just try to be a great role model to kids. I know what the game of golf has taught me. And uh, I, I love using the game of golf as, as a, you know, as something to, to, to kind of uh, help grow around the, the world. That's pretty much what we've done for the last 20 years. Be role models to kids. Try and uh, use this game, like I say, as a, as a force of good, really. So, you know, we're not, you know, we're not politicians. I know you guys hate that expression, but you know, we're really not, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, we're professional golfers. And, uh, you know... 
if Saudi Arabia wanted to use the game of golf as, as, a, as a way for them to get to where they want to be and they have the resources to accelerate that experience, you know, I think we're, we're proud to help them on that journey. So they, he, he's saying we don't associate ourselves with the politics or with the regime. And yet, on the other hand, if Saudi Arabia want to improve their human rights record, we'll help them do that. It's almost the definition of sports wa- sport washing. The last thing he said there, he, he couldn't have given a better definition really of what sport washing is about. If Saudi Arabia wanted to use the game of golf as a way for them to get to where they want to be and they have the resources to accelerate that experience, I think we're proud to be on that journey with them. Mm-hmm. That's what sport washing really is. Kevin says Joe Biden is planning to visit Saudi Arabia soon. Boris Johnson has already visited Saudi in March, condemning golfers as applying double standards. I think Boris Johnson was roundly condemned uh, for, yeah, for his but, visit. But is it fair, and this is the uh, counterpoint, I don't, don't subscribe to this, but is it fair to be targeting sportsmen and golfers in particular in this case to the degree to which they are being targeted when business is done with Saudi Arabia on a whole load of pragmatic bases around the world mm-hmm. uh, in other spheres. but So they're saying, oh, golfers, you can't do this. But, you know, I think Ireland has $800 million worth of business with Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Irish dairy industry would have a very, tie, you know, sizable dependence on, on the market there. Um, so and that's not something I'm necessarily subscribing to. But it does open this to a question as to why those points are being made by, by listeners. Yes are viable questions that need to be answered. Uh, another one, Jerry. I totally disagree with the Saudi-backed tournament, but I don't think it's any worse than FIFA taking the World Cup to Qatar. Serious questions here too, and those questions certainly have been asked. But it comes back to, again, what Graham McDowell was saying in a, in a roundabout way, the division between sport and politics and the morals that people should be looking towards and the pay packets on offer. So it's a tricky one. It always has been. Well, sport and politics have always mixed. So this idea that sport and politics shouldn't be mixed is is completely disputed by history, whether it's 1936 <laughs> Olympics in, in Berlin, whether it's the Black Power salutes of Tommy Smith and John Carlos and in 1968 Olympic Games. all the controversy now over Russia not being allowed Absolutely. to take part in tournaments. Sport and politics have always mixed. And politics has always been a part of our sport has always been part of leverage in politics. It's golf and golfers in the spotlight today, but there are a lot more Irish businesses and people of whom exactly the same questions could be asked, as several listeners to Today with Claire Burns suggested. How much more, what did your man say, could Radio 1 deliver in one week, I was beginning to wonder. Well, biodiversity loss was supposed to be in the spotlight this week. It's three years since the Dáil declared joint climate change and biodiversity loss crises. There are only a handful of climate change deniers in the Dáil, but Galway Roscommon Independent TD Michael Fitzmaurice appeared to stake out new ground as a biodiversity loss denier on Late Debate with Katie Hannan on Tuesday. Every time I look at the telly, I hear people saying, we're losing this and we're losing that and we're losing the other. Come down our country and have a look at what's there. My God, things are flourishing. And I cannot understand well, Michael, why this amount of scaremongering is going on. Because okay, can, can I just establish something? Like, can we just stop? So you're saying you don't believe the scientists who are telling us that we're losing massive amounts of our, our uh, it, true biodiversity. I heard we lost frogs. How can anyone come out and say that they know the number of frogs in Ireland? Like, you let's, do let's, surveys, Michael. Look, a survey, Jesus. Jesus, Jennifer, Ireland, frogs, that we're going to say we're going to count all the frogs in Ireland. No, we're talking about different birds. Sample. You do representative samples yeah. of them. 
And and listen. So same in, as in, I, I used to do surveys. There is a lot species, of people making a lot of new jobs for themselves. Sea, but you can do a survey. Okay, okay, okay. We'll have one voice. What I am looking yeah. at around rural Ireland is that it is flourishing, especially in the west of Ireland. I cannot speak for other parts. Um, of the country, uh, Michael, you're not a scientist. You have Michael, no. You cannot come out and say you took a look at it and thought it was lovely. We're losing bird populations. We're losing our pollinators. Okay, no. I'm telling you. Now, hang on. Let Jennifer speak. If we lose our pollinators, there will be nothing left for rural Ireland. But I saw so science done on bogs. Uh, yeah. And when we challenged them, when we got the experts in from the other, and when, do you know what the experts were? The people that were dealing with it for years, it was found out and they had to swallow their pride and say it was wrong. Look, what about the burden up. that the scientists went up on, that the farmers went back and showed them so, what was what? Look, so are you telling me that scientists know everything and the ordinary people know so, nothing? If the sock dems Jennifer Whitmore and Katie Hannan failed to persuade Michael Fitzmaurice with their evidence-based arguments, a texter might have had better luck with a bit of tactically deployed sarcasm. Maybe all the frogs had to move out of Ireland because they couldn't afford to live here. (laughs) (laughs) Back in a moment. Barry Lenehan has been reporting from the inquiry into the Grenfell Tower fire this week. Though Irish company Kingspan continues to deny that its insulation material played any role in the fire and the deaths of 72 people, the evidence about internal communications between Kingspan technical staff was a real sit-bolt-upright-in-your-chair moment of radio this week. Peter Moss, what? In capitals, we lied? Question mark. Honest opinion now. DW. Aaron Chalmers, yeah. Tested K15 as a whole, got class one. Well, hey, lol. Aaron Chalmers, yeah, all lies, mate. Pete Moss, just tickling your balls, mate. Aaron Chalmers, balls. All we do is lie in here. Pete Moss, I. So, Barry, what has King Span said and what is it saying about all this? It says it has sincerely apologised for the unacceptable actions of a small group of former employees which in no way reflect Kingspan's culture or values and that they've implemented a very extensive range of actions to ensure that this could never happen again. But Barry also reported on Kingspan's actions after the fire in engaging lobbyists to encourage the British government towards a particular view of rival products, which also came up in evidence at the inquiry. Did you see the aftermath of the Grenfell Tower fire as something of a commercial opportunity? Absolutely not. And the reality, Mr. Pargeter, is that Kingspan's position, even in 2018, in the face of a government investigation into fire safety after Grenfell, was doing its best to ensure that the science was secretly perverted for financial gain. That is the position, isn't it? That's not the position at all, no. And that had been your own approach and Kingspan's general approach for years. I disagree. And it's still going on. No, disagree. Carlo Bourne survivor of the Grenfell disaster, Willie Thompson, told Barry how in the light of this evidence he feels about Kingspan's name appearing in so many sports sponsorship deals. I would implore both Ulster Rugby and Cavan GAA, get that polish, get that get that Kingspan name off your jerseys. You think the players themselves could take a stand? Uh, I know Ulster Rugby, for instance, arguing they want to see what the public inquiry mm. ultimately decides, but for you, uh, that is not a good enough position. It's not a good enough position to continue to wear the jersey with us on it. We lobbied against Lewis Hamilton using the Kingspan, Kingspan logo on his car. A week later, it was taken off. It was taken off before his next race. If they could do it here, we do it in Ireland. The company had no statement to make to Barry about its ongoing sports sponsorship deals. The fifth anniversary of the disaster falls next Tuesday. Now, it was on the same programme on the same evening that Cormac O'Hara provided not just the best, what did your man just say, moment of the week, but also a few choice words from me having made me spit my tea all over the place. 
how do you know if you squirt the old oxytocin up the nose that you're not actually, you won't be mating with the wrong person? Drug abuse and polyamory may or may not feature in Cormac's personal life, I don't know. But he did have a professional reason for asking the question. Dr Anna Matchen was telling himself and Sarah about the possible use of some drugs like ecstasy and oxytocin to rescue ailing relationships. I mean, what oxytocin does, it doesn't attract you to people or make you more attractive to other people. What it does is it, it you know, when we, you know how nervous we always get maybe when we're going out, we, you know, maybe going out on a date or going yeah. out to meet somebody for a date. What it does is it actually quietens the fear centre of your brain, the bit of your brain that makes you sort of lose your confidence in those circumstances. It makes you much more confident. So it's not going to make you fall in love with people, but what it's going to do is make it easier for you to go up and talk to them and be sparkling and all those, and show them your amazing, you know, traits and all that kind of thing. That's how oxytocin works. It doesn't induce feelings of love. What it does is it just helps you sort of lubricate the wheels of your own ability to actually talk to somebody. But but you said MDMA does induce feelings of love. So what if... It you, does. You know, you... you, you Obviously, I'm like in, uh, you get. <laughs> I should try and get a sentence out. I have so many questions. We do this for a living, Anna. <laughs> okay, so one of my questions is: if you are prescribed MDMA, if this like in the in the right dose, uh, because you know this becomes something that has gone through all the medical trials, etc., um, and then you go out and you're feeling all loved up, but then you know the next day you're not. Sarah McInerney on Drive Time, the voice of scientific inquiry, not bitter experience. Little known fact before I go, this programme really matters hugely to one group of people above all others in Irish society. RTE radio presenters. They fondle their wirelesses each Saturday morning, hearing aids pressed up against the speaker to see if anything that they did during the course of the week really mattered at all. Some of them are so craven that they will even try and create moments with playback in mind. Just listen, for instance, to Shea Byrne picking up from Claire Byrne at the end of her programme on Thursday after an item on dog behaviour. It's over to Shea. (laughs) Sorry, Claire. Sorry. Down! Get down! <laughs> Sorry, Claire. That's giving the dog attention. Oh, stop! Shay. Should have learned that from the from the past ten minutes. Stop chewing my leg. <laughs> have a good day. My heart. <laughs> good. Ten points for Shay. Yeah. <laughs> Payback will be sweet. I won't be here much longer. I'll be fine. <laughs> Playback will be sweet. You heard him. And the previous day, after an item on gossiping. Did you hear what he did, knowing that I was on playback this week? Now, it's over to Shay. Thank you very much, Claire. Have you heard that about Philip Boucher Hayes? No, I'll tell you later. I'll tell you later. No, it's fine. We won't gossip about it now on air. Now, it's time for the Angelus. So if any of you should bump into Shay over the weekend, will you please give him the attention that he must not have gotten as an eight-year-old boy? Good boy, Shay. Good boy. (coughs) Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening.